0: So as you are grabbing coffee or whatever else here, um, I want to encourage you, turn to Matthew chapter 28. We will be primarily in verses uh, 18 through 20, but I will tell you we are going to be in a variety of passages. Um, So one of the things I will encourage you to do is you can see that we have a slide here with a nice little QR code because we're fancy like that. If you want to scan the QR code, it will take you to a place on the website where you can download all the sermon notes. Uh, One of the things I must say is every other Sunday, we go chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible. We're currently going through 1 Samuel. But on the first Sunday of every month, I teach on a particular theological topic, and we try to go over what the whole Council of Scripture has to say on that thing, which means we're in a lot of different passages, and so it helps if you get the slides. Uh, some of you grew up in churches. Did you guys do Bible sword drills? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah? All right. If you're really good at the Bible sword drill, that'll help you here, um, I'm just going to say. Uh, but don't stress out. Our main passage will be Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 20. Uh, we are, as we have mentioned, uh, in a series on ecclesiology, meaning the study of the church. And so every first Sunday, I'm trying to address a different topic related to the study of the church. Uh, The first thing we did is we went over how the church is the pillar and ground of truth, meaning the church has a role to put truth on display. Um, As such, everything we do points to the truth of the gospel. Beyond that, I would say that all truth is something part of God's revelation. And so we make a big deal out of communicating truth in general, not just saying, well, here's the gospel and forget about everything else. Um, If you are to understand the gospel, you need to understand sin, which means I need to talk about what God calls sin. Um, I need to understand how God created the universe. These things are not just throwaway realities. They're part of understanding the gospel. And so that's why part of the church holding the truth on display. Um, we preach about how homosexuality is a sin and how heterosexual sin is a sin. We taught on how issue one is an abomination. Um, right? We talk about things that are legitimate issues and we don't shy back from them because part of it is that like God hates things like abortion and he hates the mutilation of bodies and the damaging of the image of God. He hates these things and so we're going to talk about it. He also hates things like slander and gossip and selfishness and we don't get a pass because we don't have a visible sin alright with all that in mind we've gone through gospel proclamation we talk about the church of the temple of the Holy Spirit we talked about elders and deacons and a variety of other things and today we're gonna to start discussing what we call the ordinances of the church uh, today we're gonna to focus on baptism I thought it would be really cool to do baptism and Lord's Supper on the same Sunday but um, it would have been like binging a Netflix show Right, And I don't think that's healthy for you to do on Netflix. And while, yes, we'd be teaching the Word of God, you're probably not going to remember or absorb as much. So, uh, if you would would look with me, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus is speaking here as he's about to ascend into heaven. And he says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Key thing here, I know we talk about this, sermon, or this message very, relatively often, Jesus is communicating the fact that he is already king. He is Lord of heaven and earth, everything is under his kingship, presidents, demons, Everybody has subjection to the authority of Christ. And then he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We will talk more on this, obviously, as we go along. I will also mention, uh, by the way, this is where we get our first ordinance, baptism. The second ordinance, of course, is communion or the Lord's Supper. We're not going to focus on that today, but as a matter of a preview, 1 Corinthians 11:26 26 says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Notice both baptism and communion are communicating something about the gospel. And so they are quite important. We call them here ordinances you can also call them sacraments. Um, some people will really shy back from that. Uh, the idea is it just means it's a holy thing. Now, there is a view of theology called sacerdotalism that believes that baptism and communion are part of the way that you maintain your salvation. That somehow meritorious grace are given to you. We do not hold to that. Um, but just pointing that out, that there are those who hold to that. Generally, they add sacraments and they have others other than this. They believe marriage is a sacrament and some other things. Can I just tell you that we don't hold to sacerdotalism, but we sure think the ordinances are important. Another thing, by the way, I am known for doing long intros for short sermons. This is going to be a long intro, but trust me, I think it's going to be worth it. And then the sermon is going to be like medium. Like, not super long. <laughs> all right? So, uh, London Baptist Confession is the confession of faith that our church holds to. Doesn't mean that we hate all the other confessions or anything like that. Uh, but there is value in pointing to an old confession. London Baptist Confession is a pretty old one. It's from 1689. Actually, it's from earlier than that. and They reissued it in 89. It's a whole thing. Don't worry about it. Um, I'm just going to read what it says about the ordinances. Chapter 28, paragraph 1 says, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver to be continued in his church to the end of the world. That means they are very important. God himself has instituted them and they are to be a part of his church's practice to the end of the world Paragraph 2, these holy appointments are to be administered by those only who are qualified and thereunto called according to the commission of Christ. It means we better know what we're doing when we're doing baptism and Lord's Supper. It's not something to be trifled with. Uh, doesn't, well, we'll get into this more. doesn't mean that you have to be all high church about it. It means that you have to do it right and the person doing it needs to know what they're doing. So, more on intro here. Uh, You guys might have heard of a guy named Augustine of Hippo. He's kind of a cool guy. I like to say Augustine was like a reformer before we had a reformation. Um, Now I would say, I believe from scripture that every believing person is a saint, right? That's how scripture describes us. Uh, But Augustine is so often called Saint Augustine that you just kind of have to add that to his name. He mentions the idea of symbols and signs. Uh, he says symbols are powerful because they are visible signs of invisible realities. Hold on to that for a second. Log it into your brain. He also mentions of what is called what he calls a sign. And this is from On Christian Doctrine, Book 2, Chapter 1. I promise this is intro. We're getting somewhere. He says, for a sign is a thing... Over and above, the impression it makes on the senses causes something else to come to mind as a consequence of itself. As when we see a footprint, we conclude that an animal whose footprint this is has passed by. And when we see smoke, we know that there is fire beneath. We notice this. There are things that are just realities that make us know something else happened. A footprint, smoke. uh, Smoke tells us there's fire. A footprint means there was a foot. It is a very natural consequence, and that's generally how we refer to signs. There are things that simply point to this happen. I would argue that when we see the fruits of the Holy Spirit in someone's life, it is a sign that the Holy Spirit is indwelling in them. They are growing in patience and love and grace. They love God rather than hate God, and those are signs that God is at work. Symbols are an important aspect though of the Christian life. And here's how Augustine, he describes symbol, this is not a quote. It says it represents another reality, but you need more information to understand the connection between a symbol and that which it refers. When it comes to a sign, I see a footprint. I don't need somebody to explain to me how a footprint works. We understand that there was a foot there, right? When it comes to a symbol, I need to explain it. For instance, um, I need to explain to a child at a wedding that the rings are a symbol of this permanent and eternal union that a husband and wife have entered into together. The rings themselves don't magically like cause you to be married. Uh, there is a spiritual reality, there is a covenant that, that is made and the rings are the symbol that point to that eternal reality. You guys with me? So it is with baptism. So what I want to do is talk about the symbol of faith that is baptism and the significance that it plays. Um, And some of you are like, hey man, most of us are baptized. Why does this matter? We're going to see why this matters. Uh, it, It has an effect. It has a power just in the very memory of it as you are being sanctified. What's more, as we will see, baptism is part of the global conquest of Christendom. I know that sounds like I'm talking like some you know pope from years ago talking about crusades. Well, here's the thing: like, Jesus is king. And when he says to go and baptize, make disciples of all nations, he says to baptize them as this sign of the covenant. To show that like Jesus is king and we're taking over the world. All right, so first thing we see, significance of baptism, is that in it we are identified with Christ. We see this in Acts 20, I'm sorry, Acts 2. 38 through 41, when the apostle Peter has preached the gospel, he's given this broad overview of scripture that leads to how all this fits together. And here Jesus is king and savior and Messiah. And it says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. Galatians 3.27 also says, For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So notice what's happening here. In baptism, we are showing everybody that Jesus is king and we have submitted to his kingship and to his atoning work. We are in. It is an identification with Christ. Now, a little side note. We know that the Trinitarian formula in baptism is pretty critical. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peter here specifically mentions Jesus. Not to the exclusion of the Trinity, they're still baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but to make sure everybody knows you are being identified with Christ in baptism. You are in. There are significant implications to this that we're going to talk about here in just a minute. So related to being in Christ, another key thing is that I am now identified with his death and his newness of life. Understanding this, we see in Romans 6, Paul is writing about sanctification, and he says in 6, 1 through 4, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By the way, from our Roman study, does anybody know, remember what the Greek phrase that's there is? Anybody know? Nobody, it's okay. Meganoita. During When we were studying Romans and that phrase kept coming up, there were people that memorized that and it was I was really proud, but you don't remember and that's okay. <laughs> It's okay. Oh, Angela said it? So Angela said it just quietly. So I'm going to assume many more said it quietly and that, you know, that cool little factoid you guys remembered. Anyway, um, this is by no means. How are we to who died to sin to still to live in it? Sorry. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Notice, not only am I being identified with Christ in the sense that I'm saying, hey, I am on his team, I am in Christ, I am putting on Christ. But second, it means because of the substitutionary atonement, when I am baptized, I am making note of a spiritual reality in which I have been baptized into Christ and all of the benefits of his death and resurrection are accounted to me. This is why we talk about substitutionary atonement. Christ subbed in for us. It means it is as if we died on the cross. He did it. He gave us his righteousness, he took the wrath of God for sin, and then he rose from the dead. And Paul is saying, he's applying this, he's saying, how can you who've been baptized into Christ go on living as if you're still in sin? For crying out loud, you're in Christ. It was like you were crucified on the cross. You don't live anymore, man. And so in sanctification, when we're struggling with sin and we're tempted, part of the value of baptism is we point back and we say, look... I I made that, I was part of that outward proclamation of an inward thing that God has done. I can look at the physical baptism, remember the spiritual baptism, and say, I am no longer that guy. I am now new in Christ, and I get to benefit both from his death and his resurrection. Cool? Is this making sense? You guys following? Some of you probably in the back of your mind, I'm like, okay, but what about infant baptism? What about some of these things? We're going to talk about that, and it's going to be fun because, you know, If I don't get to pick on my Presbyterian brothers, I mean, what are we even doing? I'm Just kidding. I have have a very dear Presbyterian friend, and I posted the notes for this last night, and um, I mean, we get along. This is good. And uh, he screenshotted it and scribbled out the 1689 London Baptist Confession and then made a comment about Westminster, which is a theological joke you may or may not get. It's okay, but it's fun and in good love. Um, Anyway. Third thing we have here is identification with Christ's church. So I'm identified with Christ. I'm identified with his death and resurrection. Now I'm identified with his church. And have you noticed how these kind of blur together? Yeah. We're isolating them and talking about them, but all of these passages seem to address this in one way or the other. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13 says, For just as, one, as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ." For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now again, this is talking about spiritual reality of baptism, of which the physical water baptism is a reflection and a symbol. It says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Later on, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And understanding what's happening here is that something happens in baptism that identifies me with the family of God and the body of Christ. Again, it is an outward symbol of something that has happened inwardly, but it is critical and important. I tell kids when I'm explaining baptism to a child, one of the things I'll say is like, hey, do you play on a soccer team or a baseball team or a t-ball team or whatever? And they'll tell me, yeah. And I'm like, okay, are you on the team right now? Well, yeah, I'm on the team. All right, cool, awesome. Um, How do they know that you are part of the team on Saturday when you go out to play? Well, I put on a uniform. Like, all right, so baptism, you're part of the team. You are in Christ. If you have repented and believed the gospel, you're in. Right? But you, in baptism, are putting on the jersey. It is the symbol of the team that you are on, and it identifies you with the team. Part of what is kind of similar to, like, you know, you're married whether you're wearing rings or not. Right? But when you put on the rings, it is a sign and a symbol that not only do you get to look back on, but others can look at look at and say, like, that, that person's married, and they're part of the... This is what is happening. There is an identification with the body of Christ. And the water baptism is one of the ways I say, hey, buddies, I'm on this team. Cool? Everybody's with us on this. The other thing, and this is where it's going to get into some fun discussions here, is that baptism is a sign of the covenant. Um, If I could look, if you want to look with me to Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. Paul is writing to the Colossian church, and he says, "...see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority." Notice, by the way, that's, that seems to be some language very similar to what we see in Matthew 28:18. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and this uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Okay, there's a lot here. I probably could have just exegeted this passage, but I'm trying to give you like an overview of scripture here on these issues. Notice something here. He's saying that baptism seems to be a new covenant symbol, whereas circumcision was the old covenant symbol. You guys remember that in the Old Testament, the male Jews would be born and something like eight days in, they would be physically circumcised to show, hey, they're part of this covenant. Now, Paul is saying baptism is this New Testament version of this. Now, you've been circumcised of heart in that God has done the spiritual work in you. The spiritual work has already been done, but this baptism now, we're baptized into Christ. Of course, the physical baptism being the symbol of that, much like circumcision, has replaced the old covenant thing. This immediately brings up a question that all of my good Presbyterian and Lutheran and Methodist friends bring up, and my Roman Catholic buddies, right? And they'll say, if, well, the Roman Catholics don't normally make this argument. I'm sure they would, though. right? They'll say, hey, if the Old Testament covenant was for children, shouldn't the New Testament covenant be for children? Or the sign of the covenant? And they have a point. We're going to talk about that. I always like to say more on that later. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Hold on. Just the key thing is that the Presbyterians are still our brothers, even though we disagree on this thing. Here's another sign of the, or a symbol of the covenant. One is that we are reminded that we are rescued through slash from judgment. 1 Peter 3, 18, 22 says, "...for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous." Similar to what we see in Colossians where it says, like, he died once for all of the sins. Right? The righteous for the unrighteous. "...that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which we went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey." When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, meaning like there's not magic in this water, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels' authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Notice how the authority of Christ keeps coming up again and again in all of this. We are remembering in baptism what Christ has done. Now, the beautiful thing here is it's an allusion to in the Old Testament, God poured out his wrath on mankind who had gotten so wicked, and yet through the flood also provided a means of rescue for Noah and his family. Similarly, and we got to acknowledge that, hey, water is involved in both of these things. But in Christ, God poured out his wrath on all the elect, or on or his wrath for the elect, not on the elect, was poured out on Christ, much like in the Old Testament he poured out his wrath on mankind. Now the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ. Christ took that payment in a very similar way. We are being rescued through the judgment by being in Christ. Like being on the ark, we're rescued. You guys following in? So he's making this cool connection and somehow at the same time referring once again to the authority of Christ. Notice how many times it says that like he's made things subject under him. All rule and authority is his. Uh, There also in the Colossians passage it mentions how he has put the other leaders to open shame. I love that one, by the way. Like the idea, you guys notice how sometimes in evangelicalism, we really emphasize being nice. And I got to say, we should be kind. I think kindness is a good and important thing. Um, But I I heard somebody mentioned, it was Doug Wilson, I think, was saying, he said, can you imagine if David goes before Goliath and Goliath, of course, starts mocking him. He says, I'm going to feed you to the birds, kid. And what does David do? He mocks him back. It's like, who is this uncircumcised fool blaspheming God? He's like, you're going to see what happens to you. Can you imagine if he had like a booking agent, right? That is like, he's working for, say, like crossway Bible books, or right? And he's like, hey, 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 David, you are stooping to Goliath's level. Goliath is a heathen who's using mean language. Don't you be like Goliath and use mean language. That. Well, you got all these psalms that you're writing. How are we going to get those published, David? Right? (laughs) Now, Now, I want to just point something out. We should be kind. Right? But we're talking about a heathen giant who wants to murder the people of God. There is room for the warfare rhetoric of Christianity to say, go pound sand sucker, Jesus is king. And I think we've lost that art just a little bit. And I think it can be used the wrong way if we're not careful. What I'm pointing out here is that in baptism, we keep seeing the authority of Jesus referred to. And in baptism, we are proclaiming how he has triumphed over sin and death. And there seems to be something about baptism that is itself an act of spiritual warfare where we say, we just got this one. He's on our team and he's publicly proclaiming it. And you can't do anything about it, Satan, because he's one of God's elect. So Satan go and pound sand because Jesus is king. Which brings us to the next point. There is no way to separate baptism from the very clear Great Commission emphasis that we are to bring about the conquest of the kingdom of God over all of the nations. So I'm just gonna read Matthew 18, I'm sorry, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 one more time. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's all authority, guys. There is no president, there is no business leader, there is no World Economic Forum that is not under the kingship of Christ and that must bend the knee to him. This also means there is no neutral space. I don't get to say, well, let's keep the public square neutral so that we can just kind of all get along in our plurality. No, 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 no. Jesus is king there, right? So when people are like, well, do you think that like Christian laws should be pla- passed? I'm like, heck yeah, right? Like I, I think we should. I'm, I'm like... I, recognize, like, I don't think we should force people to be Christians or anything like that. But if we're going to look at the perfect law of God and say this is the standard, I think we should have laws that go matching that. Not forcing people to worship or anything like that. But it's like, hey, um, hey r- rape is wrong. And here's what God says to do to rapists. Maybe we should do that. right? Um, or hey, blasphemy is a bad idea. You guys notice something? That the guy who destroyed the Baphomet statue in Iowa is getting charged with a hate crime. Which means... Is illegal to hate Satan in the public square? So the public square is not neutral, is it? Right? I think we should proclaim the kingship of Christ and push forward. Because what does he also say? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. Now, please understand, I'm not advocating for like, let's go and, you know, I don't know, mm-hmm. be like, I don't know the right word for it. I I don't think we should go and force everybody to be Christians or anything like that. But I I don't think we can pretend like Jesus is not king (coughs) over the public square. I think that's just the simplest thing. And I recognize there's a whole lot of things that I'm not unpacking here and we can deal with in another time. But Jesus is king. And I think that's where we... And baptism... Is the way in which we proclaim his authority through repentance and faith. Anyway, um, carrying on. Chapter 29 of the London Baptist Confession. I'm going to hit a couple of these things. We're going to answer a couple of questions, and we're going to get out of here. Uh, it says, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be uh, unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted in him of remission of sins and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ the life and walk of of newness of life. Um, That should be reflective of the things I've already talked about. Cool. Um, Paragraph 2, which I think, sorry for the typo, that's also chapter 29, I believe, of paragraph 2, says, those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. And this is where the music should go, bum, 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 because now we've got to deal with this issue of infant baptism. Um, I'm just going to say from the outset, uh, really love my Presbyterian, my Lutheran brothers, right? Um, I'm just going to address this, though, because hopefully we can get some clarity that will make you love your brothers rather than being like, you're wrong about baptism. Um, the goal is that you understand how we're distinct on this so that you can love them and understand their faithful brothers and sisters. Cool? You guys follow me? So we call ourselves Baptists, which means we are Credo-Baptists. It means the creed of faith precedes the Baptism in our view, right? Presbyterians and Lutherans and several others would be called paedo-baptists, meaning we baptize babies, right? The credo-baptists, I'm going to try to give you a decent argument for both of them. We would say, hey, baptism is for believers only. That's what we see in Scripture is believers get baptized. Uh, Baptism is properly done by immersion. That's part of what we we really love that word, baptizo. Um, Baptism is an outward sign of an inward belief. And then we would also say, hey, as the Old Testament covenant... Or the Old Covenant sign was circumcision and it was done after a physical birth. Now we're in the New Covenant. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. There is a spiritual birth. And so baptism should correspond with the spiritual birth. That's one of the arguments that we bring up. And we would cite London Baptist Confession. Cool. Conversely, you have the Pado baptists which is the Presbyterians. Uh, it's not just Presbyterians, but it's often the Presbyterians, and they're pretty good at arguing for it. I'm just going to give them credit for that. They would say, hey, baptism is for both converts and children of believers. And they would cite the generational clause of the covenant, which is mentioned both in the Old and New, Co- New Testament. i got to say that. And so they would say, hey, I mean, it says, this is for your, t- Peter says in Acts 2, this is for your children and their children. They've got a point, Right. Uh, they would say baptism is properly done by sprinkling or pouring. They're generally not opposed to the dunking. That's just not how they do it because it turns out it's not usually a good idea to dunk a baby underwater. There's ways, but, you know, um, some of them do. That's just, um, so they would say baptism is the New Testament sign of the covenant, as we see in Colossians 2, and as such should be applied to children in the same way the circumcision was applied to children in the Old Testament. Can I just say, they have a point, brothers and sisters. Right? And they would cite Westminster Confession. You guys understand, like, not bad. So when I'm teasing my Presbyterian friends, one of the things I will say is, all right, show me an infant baptism in Scripture. Where they will go to is household baptisms. First Corinthians 1.16, Paul says, hey, I didn't baptize, uh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. And the Presbyterian would be like, and I'll bet there was babies there. And I would be like, well, maybe there wasn't. And they're like, well, maybe there was. Right? And then we see the same thing in Acts 16, uh, where Lydia's household is baptized. Later on in Acts 16, Philippian jailer's household. They're like, hey, this whole household got baptized. Are you going to tell me there weren't any babies there? And then I'm like, well, you're assuming there are babies there. And they're like, you're assuming there are not. And I'm like, you got a point, man. So here's what we do. When we are dealing with something like, let's just be honest, there is room for infant baptism in Scripture. It's not explicitly forbidden. <laughs> Um, and you can make a case for it. I think you can also make a case for credo, baptism, in scripture. Cool. So here's what we try to do. First of all, it means this means something we shouldn't be fighting too hard on, right? It means we don't need to be throwing fists over this. There are things that we should fight on. I don't think this is one of them. This is the kind of thing that we lovingly jab our brothers and sisters. Like, we should. We'd be like, hey, man. And we tease, and that should be good. And it should, sparring should make us stronger at this. But when we don't have a clear answer, I like to go to church history and say, what did those guys think? So I'm just going to point to Tertullian in the 3rd or 4th century-ish. He says, hey, baptize first the children, and if they can speak for themselves, let them do so. Otherwise, let their parents also or other relatives speak for them. Saying, like, you going to baptize babies. If the kids are old enough to talk, let them proclaim their faith. And if not, let their parents speak for them. That's reasonable, right? Um, that's 3rd or 4th century. Origen makes a similar comment in 248 AD. Cyprian of Carthage, similarly. Um, and Carthage, the Cyprian of Carthage actually makes the case, he's like, hey, this baby did not inherit, inherit sin by his choice. He is condemned because of the sin of Adam. So why would we withhold a blessing based on he hasn't made a decision yet? He didn't make a decision to go, fall into sin. He's not going to make the decision to get baptized. Baptized him. He makes a case, right? Makes a case. This, of course, is all in the third century, though. Uh, later on, we see, into the 4th century, Gregory of Nazanans, John Chrysostom, Ad- Augustine, they all seem to make cases for infant baptism, I'll just say. Um, from about 3rd century on, we see cases made for infant baptism. Here's the thing I bring up, though. I'm just going to get real Baptist for a second. right? Romans 9, 8, Paul says, It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So I have to say that, like, if in the Old Testament we understood that not every kid was part of the covenant because he wasn't regenerated, maybe that applies in the New Testament as well. Now, I'm leaning over here saying, like, I want to assume my kids would have all been saved. Now, my kids have all made professions of faith, but I'm like, I have to acknowledge that that thing coming over from the Old Testament (coughs) into the New. So I'm going to go a little bit earlier in church history and point out that Tertullian in De Baptismo We're getting into church history today, you guys. Says this, this is according to everyone's condition and disposition and also his age, the delaying of baptism is more profitable, especially in the case of little children. For why is it necessary, if baptism itself is not necessary, that the sponsor should be thrust into danger? For they must either fail of their promise by death, or they may be mistaken by a child's proving of wicked disposition." They, are, uh, that they that understand the weight of baptism will rather dread the receiving of it than the delaying of it. An entire faith is secure of salvation. Notice what he's saying. He's like, I'm just saying, you guys, baptism is a big deal, right? You're making a commitment here. You're saying you're in and you're held to a higher standard. So wouldn't it make sense to like make sure everybody understands this? And I gonna just throw this onto some babies. I don't know. I will say the first mention of explicit in church history of infant baptism is one where they're kind of warning and saying, not, A, not that it's wrong, but maybe we, maybe we should be careful about this. That's Tertullian. All right. Uh, we also have, and I'm just going to point out, what is called the Didache. I'm, I'm, hopefully this is of interest to you. This might be boring you to tears. I don't see any tears yet. I'm watching in the back <laughs> if I see any tears. We're almost done, so don't worry. Uh, the Didache would, was one of the earliest Christian documents other than scripture. Uh, It essentially means the teaching of the Twelve. We don't believe that it was written by the apostles, but the idea of the Didache was that people who had been discipled by the apostles or just early Christians were writing down, hey, here's some things that we were taught. And they give some direction on baptism in here. Now, again, this is not Scripture. It's not holding the authority of Scripture. What this is, though, is a lens to see what did early Christians believe. And this is in the first century. This is early. They say, concerning baptism, thus baptized, having first said these things... Um, the Apostles' Creed is what they, or some version of it, is what they were referring to. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in running water. If you do not have running water, then baptize in other water. If you cannot baptize in cold water, meaning like water outside, then baptize in warm. If you do not have either running water or other water, then pour out water three times upon their head into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the baptism. Ah, this is it. Before the baptism, let the baptizer and any who are able fast, uh, and you will order the baptism to fast or the baptized to fast one or two days before. Us Baptists will say, "Sure, sounds like this is all preceding baptism." And then everybody else will say, "Hey, but wait a minute! We know that sponsors would speak for the baptized, and so then that's their their thing." I'm just trying to give you the good picture of the arguments on this. Um, here's what's interesting to me is I get to say like hey, running water is the best way, dunking underwater is the best way, number three is pouring. And so I tease the Presbyterians, I'm like, sprinkling's not even mentioned in here, man. Um, And they just laugh and say, ha, 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 ha. (laughs) Anyway, I'll just point out, it seems, it seems that baptism was the norm for the first 200 years of the church, credo baptism, but I cannot say that explicitly. And so for that reason, it's a good reason to not get into fights with our Presbyterian brothers. I'll also point out, baptize, the word baptizo, does mean to, like, immerse or thrust under. But that's a whole other thing. Here's what I'll just say. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are infant baptizers. And let me just tell you, they're faithful brothers, right? They take it very seriously. And they would say, hey, this is a sign of the covenant. I'm discipling these children to follow Jesus. I'm giving them the blessing of the covenant sign. And can I just say, I understand We're not going to get in fights with them over it. Everybody clear on that? You understand where we stand? And we also understand where our brothers and sisters stand. And we high-five them and say, praise the Lord. And then when we're having, you know, drinks around a fire, we tease them. That's what we do. This is part of Christian brotherly love. All right, baptism FAQ. Very fast as we're finishing up here. Some people come to me and they're like, hey, can a person be saved without water baptism? And I would say, yes. I mean, we know the thief on the cross, Luke 23, 43. He was saved. He didn't get dunked underwater. However... If you have put your trust in Christ and you understand that Christ commanded baptism, he commands it, and that it is like the sign that you are in. It's like, well, would you join a baseball team and not wear the uniform? Like you're showing up to practice, you're showing up to games, you're playing and everybody's kind of confused. And you're like, well, why don't you want to wear the uniform, man? I would say since it is a command, I would say if if you are delaying baptism, please take serious stock of whether or not you are trusting Jesus. Why am I delaying obedience in baptism? And I will tell you, we'll baptize you. If you want to get baptized, get baptized. Praise the Lord. Uh, I mean, we'll we'll break up ice on the lake if you want to. I mean, like we'll go today. I'm not even kidding. Yeah, Keith.
1: Uh, I wanted to get baptized. Every baptism. So I said, "Man, I'm going to be baptized." But I, I, I knew I was already saved. But I wanted to do the baptism because, like, hey, this was a whole, you know, kind of fresh start, maybe. and I was like, "Yeah, if the Lord says so, it's good. Mm-hmm. And you wanted to proclaim your faith, you know, when you're young too, and you're like,
0: "Yeah." So. Praise the Lord, brother. You're totally stepping on my second question, but it's all right.
1: ice, and open doors of ministry that will take Bibles all over the world. In Russia, when Christians would get saved, that was a big deal with Baptists. And it really bothered the communist mm-hmm. government Yeah. have these And a lot of times, they would go out and break up ice and have baptism.
0: Praise the Lord, brother.
1: Because they were really...
0: Yeah. Praise the Lord. Yeah, this does bring up second question. Like, if I was baptized as an infant, do I need to get baptized again? I I say, no, we are not Anabaptists. We're Baptists. That said, I know many who are like, I want to make a clear proclamation of faith. And I say, praise the Lord. Um, We at our church don't force you to do that. Um, But we're like, hey, praise the Lord. If you want to get dunked again, I I understand the idea of saying, I want to do this as a proclamation. Praise God. Uh, Then the other question that comes up, should I take a class before getting baptized? And I'm going to be like, I don't think you need a class. Uh, In the first century, you trusted Christ, you got baptized. That's just what happened. Um, I want to make sure you understand. So I'm going to be having a conversation with you, but we don't make you go through a big, long class or anything like that. Um, Here's my last thing here. Uh, As we finish up here, I, I don't know if you all have noticed, but it seems that Christendom in the United States is in decline, right? Um, And if you, I've been studying more Western history. Uh, I was watching a documentary on the fall of Constantinople. I've been reading books about the Crusades and all of these things. And it's an interesting thing that's happening, and now I'm oversimplifying, but that it seems throughout history, since like, I don't know, 900 so AD, Parts of Christendom would deteriorate with weaker doctrine, pieces like I think of Constantinople. Their glory was fading. And what happens, but Muslims tend to come in and either through immigration or warfare or both, they tend to just kind of take some ground. And I'm going to tell you, the more we think in terms of retreat related to the gospel, or the more we try to say, let's just treat all of that ground as neutral, let's not offend other backgrounds and other religions and other traditions, the more it seems like our enemies in both paganism and in, and in Islam come and try to take ground that belongs to Jesus. Now, I recognize there's problems with the Crusades, but I love the theme of God wills it. Deus volt means God wills it. And I'm not sure about popes proclaiming crusades and saying God wills it. Here's what I do know. God himself says that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And that we are to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. And in that sense, God wills that. So go and make disciples. Take baptism very seriously because it is part of the warfare for Christendom, for the kingdom of God, for the glory of Christ. Anyway, three books that I'll recommend here. Mark Dever's Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Um, not a full endorsement of everything Mark Dever, but this is a good book. Of course, I got my 1689 London Baptist Confession on there just because. Um, and then if you're looking for like a book on like discipleship and whatever, I'm going to recommend my book. I don't do that much, but it does fit here. So there we go. Um, with all that said, we ask three questions every week. What does this say about God? What does it say about us, and how does it relate to the gospel? What does all this about baptism say about God? Okay, yeah. We are to confess him as Lord and Savior, and that there is value in this outward sign of that. What does this say about us? Yeah, I would say so. And then I would also say that we need the symbol, don't we? Like the spiritual thing happens and it's helpful to have anchors. Just as like I have a wedding ring that reminds me and everybody else that my heart belongs to Christy Sam's. Right? Powerful and helpful thing. We're married. Everything about marriage occurs without that ring. And yet the ring is pretty doggone important. Um, cool. How does this relate to the gospel? It's almost too obvious, isn't it? Right, like I'm proclaiming my adherence to the gospel, recognizing what Christ has done in a dying and atoning death to pay for my sin and raising from the dead. Yeah?
2: I was thinking, too, about being a sign, a symbol. Mm-hmm. And then to, and I was thinking, to mm-hmm. whom?
0: And yeah,
2: with our with our fellow believers, but then like with the ring, I mean, it is a sign to others, but it's a sign to you. Mm-hmm. Like it's something that reminds you of what's happening. Yep. There are invisible realities, and that baptism says, I, I
0: have declared, it. like, Amen. I have made that, you know, um, declared my allegiance. Amen. This Praise the Lord. Well, who is on for, ba- uh, for oh, yes. I, I was going to say, I actually
2: heard, I forget where I, where I was listening to you, but somebody was talking about just, you know, the, the Jewish tradition of um what a young man would Because mm-hmm. they understood the, the, the allegiance aspect of, you know, of baptism.
0: All right. Well done. Who is on for gospel? Go for it, sister.